0: I'm Doug Wells. Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. Well, realtors in America got an unpleasant Halloween surprise when a jury in federal court in Kansas City found that the National Association of Realtors and several large brokerage companies had engaged in a conspiracy to artificially inflate commissions paid to real estate agents. The jury awarded some $1.8 billion in damages, and that number is subject to tripling under the applicable antitrust statute. Now that case is being appealed, but the decision could have major implications for the real estate agents industry and how agents are compensated. Professor Jordan Berry of the USC Law School is the co-author of a groundbreaking paper that looked at the way that buyer agents are compensated and the phenomenon of agent-based steering. We're lucky he's here, here this morning to help us understand both the behavioral economics of the current agent structure and the implications of the ongoing litigation. Jordan, good morning and thanks for joining us.
1: Good morning to you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Jordan, let's start with a bit of an overview of sort of the role of buyer's agents and seller's agents, frankly, in the real estate market. They're both, under traditional agency, you'd think of them both as having fiduciary obligations. But, But it's a little bit strange, isn't it? Jordan, did I lose you? Yes, but I'm back now. I don't know what happened. Okay. I just want you to sort of of outline the roles that buyers and sellers agents play and how this is a little bit different than a a normal fiduciary obligation.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's a little bit interesting, right? So uh, you're right that they do generally have fiduciary obligations. They're both under law and also under NAR as a code of ethics that requires realtors to put the client's needs above their own. The agency laws is quite similar in this. You're supposed to look out for your client and not for yourself. So the tricky thing here, a sort of unusual thing I should say is that the way real estate sales tend to work in the United States is that when the seller lists their home, they negotiate with their listing agent, what they're going to pay the listing agent, which makes sense, but also. They negotiate what they're going to pay to the buyer's agent. It is the seller. So the seller pays the listing agent who then pays the buying agent. So the sort of indirectly, the seller is setting the compensation for the agent working for the other side, which is a little unusual. And you know, to be clear also, I think that uh, there are a lot of buyer agents who surely do this. They put their clients interests above their own. But there is some evidence that not everyone does and that some of them are engaging in steering and they're steering their clients toward homes that pay higher commissions for buyer agents. And, and that's a
2: problem if you're a fiduciary, right? I mean, I, I wanted to define the term, we just mentioned it, but a fiduciary means, as you as you said, professor, you have to put your client's interest ahead of your own. And if you're not showing a buyer, you're, if you're not showing your client who's a buyer Houses, just because they're not paying that full traditional 3%, that's a problem. Uh, Yeah,
1: exactly. So So talk a little bit more about that. Oh, sure. Yeah, as you said, if you're a fiduciary, you do have obligations to your client, and you must put their interests above your own. And it's hard to tell a story where the client's interests involve your commission. So if there's a house that they might like, and you don't want to show it to them because of your interest, because it won't pay you as much money, that's not allowed. That's a problem. And so the tricky thing is that it's hard to prove this happens in an individual house. You, know, you can look at any one house and say, oh, I didn't show the house to my buyer because I didn't think it was a good house. I didn't like the light. I thought it had a foundation problem or something like that. But uh, it does seem to be happening and we do have evidence sort of systemically that this is a problem. Okay. And again, not everyone's doing it, but we do have evidence that it does happen.
2: Yeah, and about two-thirds to three-fourths of Americans own a home. So much of our audience has gone through either they've been a buyer or they've been a seller sometime in their life. Uh, And at least in my situation, in the four or five homes I've owned in almost 60 years, I've been on the earth. You know, I have in the past sometimes negotiated with my agent. I'm selling a home, but but I've never negotiated for the buyer's rate. And my thinking Mm -hmm. there was... Of course, I want the buyer to be indifferent between the buyer's agent, my house and somebody else's house. Why has that 3%
1: rate been so sticky? Yeah, great question. So let me start with a little bit of history here, if that's okay, because commissions in this industry really have been quite sticky. So a little history, we go back to um, NAR and its predecessor, the National Association of Real Estate Boards. and. NAR back then had these mandatory fee schedules for an MLS. If you were going to post your home on the MLS, you had a specific fee that you had to offer. Uh, And that was challenged by the federal government as an antitrust violation, you can't fix prices. And the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And in 1950, the Supreme Court sided with the government and struck that down. So at that point, NAR switched over to recommended fee schedules. All right, well, we can't require you, but we recommend that you do this. And the fees stayed the same. And there were more antitrust lawsuits brought by the state and federal regulators. And eventually NAR prohibited that as well, the recommended fee schedules in 1971. So then, you know, 10 years later, there was this big FTC report following several years of investigations and 1983, the FTC finds that commissions have been steady since the mandatory fee schedules, in 1950s and 1940s. So a long time of stickiness. Now, I should say that fees did come down a little bit in the 1990s, but they've been very steady since 2000 or so. Uh, Real Trends reports national average commissions and they report 5.4% in 2000 and 53 in 2022. So basically flat in that time period. And in some ways, this is really surprising. Home prices in that time, they've gone up a lot. And the internet presumably makes it easier for buyers and sellers to find each other and to manage the whole home selling process. So you would think that both of those items, those forces would push commission rates lower and they've basically stayed the same. At the same time, a number of other industries have seen commissions plummet. You know think about travel agents or stockbrokers. So why are these so sticky? Uh, one thing I think that helps explain why commissions are so steady, is that it's what we call a collaborative industry, It's an industry in which real estate agents compete with each other to get listings for clients, but they also have to work together to do their jobs. You know, if you're a selling, if you're a listing agent, then you want buyer agents to bring their clients to see your homes. And if you're a buyer agent, you're going to want listing agents and their clients to consider your clients seriously to work with you to set up viewings, all that kind of stuff. So you got to work with your rivals as well as compete with them. You want them to like you, or at least tolerate you and work with you. And this tends to foster norms over time. So in Austin, Texas, for example, over 95% of buyer agent commissions on listings are exactly 3% or exactly 2.5%. In LA, about 90%, that's where I live, about 90% of buyer agent commissions are exactly 2.5% or exactly 2.0%. So you get these kind of a lot of cool, a lot of uh, the same pricing clustering on pricing, you get these basically the top two rates in almost every major metro area we looked at have you know 80 or 90 or even higher percentages in terms of number of homes sold at one of those two rates. And if you deviate from these norms, if you come in and start offering much lower commission rates, those tend to be punished. People don't like it. And they tend to avoid your houses as much, you know, to to show you that. And that has teeth because again, you've really got to work with your rivals. Um, If they don't want to work with you, it's going to be a big problem for your business because you only get paid when you actually have houses get sold. And my co-author and I have written about some other collaborative industries as well, like in IPOs tend to charge a mid-sized firm 7%, and that's been a very sticky number there as well.
0: Now, the paper that you wrote, it, 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 is intuitively, it, it seems intuitive that there would be this phenomenon where buyers' agents would avoid um, homes that offered less commission because they're going to make less money. But you were able to get some data, and I w- can you talk to the audience a little bit about how you went about that and what the data showed?
1: Happy to, yeah. So our paper looks at, as you said, commission-based steering, and it basically has two parts to it. The first part is a lot of statistical analysis applied to a large sample of nationwide data. And the second part is more qualitative. We can talk about that if you want to. So the first part, the data part, uh, we look at redfin listings in 34 large metropolitan areas around the United States from June, 2021 to February, 2022. So recent data, we have about 265,000 different listings we, we looked at. And so first we look for steering directly. We look at whether, homes with lower commission rates for buyer agents get fewer page views on Redfin, the real estate website. And we control for a lot of features of each home, you know, property type. And you know, it a single family home, is it a condo? Is it a townhouse? How big is the house? How many baths, how many baths, when was it built? The exact location, like a lot of different controls. And we find that homes that offer lower buyer agent commissions. So commissions that are below the going rate in that geographic market, Those homes get fewer page views than other homes. So if you're in Austin where the going rate is 3% and you offer a 2.5% buyer agent commission, you're probably going to get less attention. And we find that this effect is biggest for the homes with the lowest commissions, which are below 2%. Those are pretty rare, just about everywhere. But we do see an effect even for slightly below market commissions. And we consider a bunch of other explanations. We want, you know, maybe these below market commission homes also tend to be overpriced, but the data does not support that. For example, if anything, these sellers underprice a little bit by comparison. So that's the first thing we look at is, do they get less attention by fewer page views? The next thing we look at is, you know, if that's all there was looking at a website, nobody would really care too much. Does it have any kind of real world effects? So we look at the time it takes to sell a home and we find that if you have a lower commission for buyer agents, it does take longer time to sell your home. And this effect gets bigger as your commission gets further below the going rate. So the biggest effect is for the lowest commissions. They take about a third more time to sell than other homes, all else equal. And then we look at whether the home sells at all. And we also find that if you have a lower buyer commission rate, the same pattern holds a lower commission means there's a greater chance that you won't be able to sell your home at all. And again, the biggest effects are for the lowest commissions. In a typical market, we find that the lowest commission rate uh, increases your chance of not selling your home by about seventy-five percent. So if your chance of selling a, a going rate commission home is twenty percent, there'd be a thirty-five percent chance of not selling a lower this this lowest commission rate homes. And again, in all these analysis we do a lot of controls and we see very similar, very similar consistent results.
0: I I want to get to sort of some of the legal implications of all this, but I I, I think our audience would find interesting some of the anecdotal stuff that you had, including some of those taped phone calls. Can you describe what you learned through those?
1: Oh, yeah. Sure. Um, So, as you mentioned, we have 700 or so taped phone calls with this company called Rex. And Rex didn't use the MLS system. So if buyers saw their homes, they would have their agents call Rex to set up a viewing, and the agents would call Rex about setting these up, and they would also ask on these calls how commissions work. And these calls are all recorded at the beginning. They say, thanks for calling Rex, this may be recorded, et cetera. And when the agents learned how Rex handled the buyer agent commissions, a lot of them didn't like the answers they got. And so hundreds of these agents across the country would then explicitly say on this recorded call that they weren't gonna show the home because the commission wasn't high enough. And a lot of agents also just hung up when they heard about the commission structure. Some of them tell their client, they say on the phone that they're gonna tell their clients the property's already sold, and this is kind of amazing, because again, the call does start with this call that be recorded and we were sort of struck by how straightforward that was. We have some other evidence too, if you want me to talk about that. that.
2: That is just fascinating and frankly, as, as somebody that owns a home, horrifying that, that that's the way things work behind the scenes. You know, it's been a long time, Professor, since I've been in college. but. <laughs> Uh, My undergrad is in the hard sciences, it's in engineering, but then I went to business school. And one of my favorite questions to ask my business school professors, because many of those topics, behavioral economics, organizational psychology, uh, organizational behavior, those are what I call the softer sciences. And one of my favorite questions to ask professors of softer sciences is, what do you know to be true? but you can't prove. So if you were gonna summarize what you've learned through this, you mentioned the qualitative, you mentioned the phone calls, what do you know to be true that you can't prove? And I know professors hate answering that question because you want to do the statistical studies, but in in this case, what do you know to be true, but yet you can't prove it?
1: (laughs) That is funny. Well, I would say that it certainly seems I strongly believe that, so one is that we have a lot of evidence that there is steering, and secondly, I I think that that has real economic implications. So I think that this steering does put pressure to keep commissions higher than they otherwise would be. Now, as you mentioned, you talked about being a seller of a home and being concerned that the buyers would be steered away from your home. You don't want that. You want to make sure that the buyers come and look at your house so you can sell it and get the best price. And that's a tough spot to be in There's a pretty compelling pressure to sort of meet the going rate and not complain or fight about it. And so I think this has a real effect in that respect. And this is a big deal for a lot of people, uh, for most homeowners, your home is by far your largest asset. So paying 6% when you sell it, you know, between buying and selling 6%, that's a lot, that's a real cost. Uh, other countries tend to have somewhat different systems. They generally have lower commission rates than the United States does. So like the UK or Belgium or, Australia has an auction system. Uh, so I think, I think that's a big deal. I also think there may be some other effects too. You know, if it's harder to sell your home and it's more expensive, you know, at the margin that probably discourages people from moving to take new jobs and things like that. And I also think that steering seems like it impacts innovation in the industry. You know, we also look at iBuyers, these companies that buy and then sell the home right away or shortly thereafter, sort of like a broker for home sales. And we find that agents seem to also steer away from those homes probably, uh, which makes it harder to innovate and change the industry and kind of bring in new technology and new ways of doing business. So I think that's a problem as well.
0: I want to touch on a couple of topics uh, in the five minutes we have remaining. The first one is... Let's talk about what's going on on the legal side. I mean, there has been some enforcement, as you mentioned, the FTC issues have looked at, and justice has looked at this in the past, but we now have this jury verdict. What do you see happening? What was the theory behind the verdict as far as, far as you understand it? And what are the implications of it?
1: Yeah, good. You know, I'm sorry. I'm glad you're having fun. So it's a big deal, this verdict. We're talking about a $1.8 billion verdict. Whenever you get a, one, whenever you get a multi-billion dollar verdict against you, I think people tend to notice Uh, I think this also fits in with sort of a larger history of antitrust enforcement in this area. Like I said, it goes back to the forties and fifties to the modern day. And since the seventies, at least regulators have been worried about steering as a concern. Like on multiple occasions, they've talked about it, but they haven't really had a lot of hard data and that seems to have held them back. So I think that may be changing. Uh, the DOJ is seeking information now about, from NAR regarding steering. Uh, we have this paper, there's another paper a few years ago that was more localized, but but a really good paper as well, and we got these private lawsuits. So I think that either regulators might force change, that, even if they don't, the kind of liability that we're seeing in these cases, that can be a real motivator. Uh, you know, that said, NAR is appealing and they might win, and there are also more cases coming down the pipe. So it's a pretty exciting time for the industry.
0: And is, was the underlying theory in the antitrust case essentially that this phenomenon of fixed agent, co- fixed buyer agent compensation, is, is amounts to sorry, amounts to an anti-competitive pro- uh, uh, behavior.
1: Yeah, the basic argument was that uh, NAR and some of these big brokerages had conspired to keep commissions high, and part of that was coordinating on the rules that govern MLSs, because most MLSs are NAR affiliated, so NAR has leverage to control their policies and practices.
0: And and Doug asked you a question uh, that he would ask of a professor. I want to turn you into a policymaker and give you control of the ball. If you could fix this system, what would you do to solve this problem?
1: Great question. So I think the big thing to do would be to prohibit buyer agents from being paid by sellers. Uh, I think that would make them have to kind of go to buyer agents and sort of negotiate their salary with buyer agents. Sorry. That would with the buyers directly with their clients, that would take the steering issue off the table. You wouldn't have, because you wouldn't be able to say to your buyer, hey, if you don't pay me enough, I'm gonna take you away from good houses. go will find another agent, right? That wouldn't work very well. I think that would put downward pressure on commission rates. It would help align incentives so the person that they're working for is actually paying them.
0: And, and just so people can understand how that might work, some people might, the, the immediate reaction might be, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm a home buyer. I can't really afford to pay um, this buyer's agent directly. Is there a way that this could be arranged such that the fee could end up being part of the closing table and therefore financed?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's something that NAR has argued is that if we change this up, it'll make it better for buyers to buy homes because they won't be able to mortgage finance the fee for their buyer's agents. So I don't think this is persuasive. I think that agents and bankers and other industry professionals are smart, capable people. I think there are work to make this work. And one way is to basically have the buyer add the amount of the commission for their agent onto the home price. And the purchase contract has the seller pay the buyer agent. So I mentioned Rex earlier was a little bit different than many other real estate brokerages. And Rex did exactly that. And their CEO stated in formal court filings that this worked and they had no problems. So I think this is a a doable workaround.
2: And, And Professor, my last question for you is you mentioned other places uh, around the united states and as i was preparing for today's call what i was thinking to myself is you know the u.s system is, is is to paraphrase winston churchill is is a horrible system but it's the best system that we know of you mentioned some countries that are doing it well but there's a ton of countries that would love to have a system like ours that are incredibly inefficient. I'm thinking like in South America, it's really hard to find what houses are available. There is no MLS. So you talked about the best. Can you talk about how most of the world handles
1: home sales? Gotcha. Well, I can't speak to the whole world, but I I do want to say that I really agree with you. I mean, you're right that the MLS is a great tool. You get all the buyers and sellers together and that didn't happen by accident. You know, NAR had a lot of a role in making that system that we have today, uh, yeah, I think they deserve credit for that. Well, that's a great note for us
2: to end on. We've been talking with Professor Jordan Berry of USC. He's a, a law professor there. Professor, fascinating conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And in many countries around the world, Consumers leave voluntary payments, what we call tips, to service workers who have served them. Since tips are an expense that we as consumers uh, pay, but we're also free to avoid. Tipping has become anomalous with behavior that many economists would call irrational or mysterious. Michael Lynn is a nationally recognized expert on tipping who's written over 80 research publications on this topic. Michael Lynn is the professor of services marketing at Cornell School of Hotel Administration and joins us this morning to help us understand what this again economists would call irrational or mysterious action. So professor thank you for joining us. Well thank you for inviting me. Okay. You know, I think one of the reasons you're on the air today and we're talking to you about this topic is tipping has become pervasive. It is everywhere. And I'm wondering if you can share with us maybe why this has come to be.
3: Wow. It's hard to pinpoint it to just one cause. I think it's a combination of things. First off, during COVID, people became more generous with their tipping, and businesses took from that a lesson that consumers were willing to give tips. On top of that, uh, technology allows people to ask for tips in a way that make that increases the social pressure on them it used to be we've had tipping at counter service for a long time it just wasn't very pervasive because you use tip jars and with the tip jar you can see that whether customers are tipping or not and quite often the rate of tipping would be relatively low and that lowered pressure and so forth uh the new digital tip screens hide that information And I think that most people tend to assume if a business is asking for tips, it's normative to tip in that circumstance. Now, that's not correct. We know from surveys that most people are not tipping under uh, when they see these tip screens in unusual places. But consumers are not aware of that. They feel some social pressure to tip. And that social pressure means it's more efficacious for businesses to ask for the tip. And then on top of that, I mean, I can keep going (laughs) with explanations. But part of it is, too, that we're uh, at a point after the pandemic of full employment and inflation. Full employment means that that businesses need to offer their employees more income in order to attract and retain them. Uh, Inflation means that they're reluctant to raise prices in order to support those higher salaries. One way out of that conundrum is to ask for tips on behalf of your employees. That way you can pay your employees more, but you're not imposing the cost of that on every consumer. Only those consumers who are willing and able to tip more bear the the cost of that increased income to employees. So it's a combination of all of these things have contributed to the situation where you're right. Today, more and more people are seeing tips, requests, in situations that traditionally you wouldn't have.
0: Now, you mentioned something really interesting earlier today, as I was buying my coffee, and they spun the tip uh, screen around when I handed them my credit card. I asked the barista, I said, so do you look to see whether somebody's tipping you or not? And she said, absolutely. So my question for you is uh, the data. Is it, I mean, so, of course, I'm easily guilted into doing this, so I'm going to throw a dollar on there, but what are people doing? What does the data tell us about the extent to which people are tipping at counters when they're simply picking up food? Well,
3: in, for baristas, only about one in three customers leave a tip to a barista in a coffee shop. So, does the barista going to notice? Certainly. Are they going to be, you know, unhappy that you failed to leave a tip? Of course they are. But... At. So don't feel uh, quite as pressured as you probably do.
0: So, so that's, that's baristas. Let's talk about some other um, kinds of industries where we're seeing um, tips being asked for in areas that we didn't see them in the past. Uh-huh. So, for example, um, do I uh, tip um, you know, a, a bus
3: driver, for example? I don't know of any data looking at tipping of bus drivers. The only one, the only kind of bus driver that you would traditionally tip would be perhaps a tour bus exactly. driver. That's right, That. Um, but certainly not your standard Metro no. bus driver, no.
0: Well, and, and one of the things we see here in, in Park City, for example, that makes this interesting is, we have a system where we have a, a, a micro transit system where you can call and someone will come and take you to the nearest bus stop for free. Do you tip that person? Do you tip that
3: person? You know, I haven't heard of that. (laughs) Uh, So, and I certainly don't know of any data on it. Um, But yeah, I mean, if you want to, should you feel compelled to? No, tipping is never obligatory. Um, But might you want to express your gratitude with a tip? Why not?
2: So, you know, we're an unusual town, Professor. This is Park City. Obviously, we're a ski town. Believe it or not, all of our public transit is free here because one of this town's biggest challenges is we have too many cars on the road. So we're really trying to figure out how to reduce traffic. Uh, I do remember, Roger, back in the day where the free buses did have a tip jar, not for the driver, but to offset the cost. I think those are gone now. But, you know, Roger brings up a good point about these different places that we used to not tip that now we do. Is there data on the aggregate? You know, how much is the average American tipping in a year? And has that gone up, particularly post-COVID? Or instead of leaving a $3 tip one place and no tip another place, are we now leaving a dollar tip at three places? So what's happened at the aggregate level?
3: we don't know there is no good data on to answer those questions we do know that 70 percent of consumers report that they're being asked to tip more than ever before and that um, many of them feel pressured to leave a tip Um, but we also know like I said about one in three consumers tips uh, at baristas and it's something like Oh, I'm trying to remember one in four tips, uh, counters, other counter service providers. Um, so
4: what's, what's the
3: average
2: tip at a fancy restaurant these days? Is it 20%? Is it 25%? Is it 1510?
3: I don't know. Uh, again, we don't have great data on this. If you, um, as consumers, they the average claimed restaurant tip, not just fancy, but restaurant tip is about 20% today.
0: I, I want to turn to, you know, we've sort of been talking about data, but I want to turn to, a lot of times the conversations about tipping are this weird mix of economics and morality. Um, when we talk about a counter person, you may or may not ever have an interaction with that person again. But there are some relationships where you do see people on a repeated basis. And again, talking about um, some of the unique things about our uh, town, take a ski instructor. You pay $1,000 or more for a day-long ski, mm-hmm. for a day-long ski lesson. and Worth every all-
2: penny, by the way.
0: Uh, Doug is f- speaking as a ski instructor. But... Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, the, even though that's costing you $1,200, the ski instructor's probably only getting paid, you know, X dollars an hour. Uh, how, what's appropriate in terms of a tipping conversation in that context?
3: Okay. I, I'm a social scientist, not an etiquette expert, okay? Fair. I really, I really uh, don't want to be in a position of telling people what they should or shouldn't be tipping. Mm, that's fair. Um but, again, something to keep in mind, there is no tipping God, right? <laughs> I'm not that person, and, and Miss Manners isn't that person. They're, tipping norms don't come from down on high. They come from the bottom up. They come from what people do. And if enough people start tipping an occupation, then it becomes kind of expected and service providers and other consumers will evaluate you negatively if you don't do it but it's this bottom-up nature of tipping norms Um, that's why I think for example you cannot say that it is normative to tip counter providers or Mm -hmm. even baristas because most people are not tipping Uh, in terms of ski instructors that's you know a specific enough Uh, Sorry, Professor. We're a ski town. I we, just don't we, know. we
2: yeah. We had to ask, but let me let me let me switch here and, and get into your area of expertise. I suspect, uh, as a social scientist looking at cultures, how did mm-hmm. the culture of tipping develop here in the United States? Because in many parts of the of the world, people don't tip for for almost anything. You know, the idea is the employer pays a livable wage. Uh, at the restaurant or whatever, and, and tipping is not expected in almost any part uh, of society. How did the U.S. develop a culture of tipping?
3: Tipping used to be common in Europe. And after the Civil War, Americans traveling abroad picked up the habit and brought it back with them. Ironically, uh, it took off here and became this really pervasive phenomenon that we see today, whereas in Europe it died out. Uh, why is that? Again, lots of of potential explanations. Some of it is the nature of the people in the different countries. I've done research showing, for example, that tipping is more common. We tip a greater number of people, and we tip larger amounts in countries whose populations are extroverted and outgoing. Um, they tip a larger number of occupations and larger amounts uh, in countries whose populations are more gender. It has to do with the character of the American people and their values, but that's only a tiny portion uh, some of it has to do with history uh, after the Civil War um, there were an influx of any of the black male laborers went to work for the railroads as porters and the railroad companies decided they didn't want to pay them a whole lot uh, so they kind of promoted tipping as an alternative to regular wages uh, and when minimum wage laws came up, employers uh, petitioned and succeeded in ge- exempting uh, tipped workers from receiving minimum wages. And these kinds of historic factors also no doubt play a role. But, you know, when you're talking about societal-level effects, it gets pretty complicated.
0: Professor, what, what what other areas have you studied in terms of seeing differences in tipping behavior in the last 25 years?
3: I'm not sure what you mean um, by seeing differences in tipping behavior. Um, it is, there is data. I've found that people do tip more uh, during the pandemic than they did beforehand. There's research that I and others have done showing that when you're facing a tip screen the more they ask for the more you're likely to give and that's part of the reason that tip screens are asking for larger and larger amounts because it pays off to ask for more. that's fascinating. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what you were hoping to that, that learn is, about.
0: That, that is the kinds of thing I was, I was hoping to learn about. As we've seen these changes in tip screens, we're seeing the envelope being pushed to where sometimes you'll spin that screen around and the lowest amount is 20%, the lowest amount is 22%. Um, and I take it, you taking a look at that, it, it actually works to drive more revenue. And, is this, and, and so I, is this just part of an overall successful strategy, sort of going back to your Porter story, an overall successful strategy to try to offload employee costs onto the consumer?
3: Yes and no. I mean, the one thing to keep in mind is that any labor savings that businesses get because of tipping almost certainly get passed on to consumers in the form of lower prices ultimately someone who's tipping a lot is not subsidizing the business as much as they're subsidizing other consumers who don't tip okay yes um that's
2: a that's a fascinating insight in and on that i'm curious my my notes here for today's shows uh tells me that you've written 80 research publications on tipping what what are a few one or two Insights that that you found through those research reports that maybe when you talk to your friends and family, they're like, oh, you know, I I didn't realize that. What are the big ah ahas from your 80 research papers?
3: Everyone thinks that they tip to reward good service. And no doubt that's true of many people, but it's not quite as strong a predictor of tipping as people expect. Customers, when I stand outside of restaurants and interview customers about how much they tipped and get them to rate the service, I find a correlation of about 0.2. That means 4% 4 of the differences in tips left by different dining parties can be explained by their rating of service. It's statistically significant, but it's trivial in size. Um, What is the biggest predictor? It's something that people tend to. Not to want to admit to themselves. We tip for social approval or to avoid social disapproval. That's one of the least commonly endorsed motives for tipping. But when I look at what predicts restaurant tips, the biggest factor is bill size. It explains 70% of the differences in tips left by different dining parties can be explained by bill size. Why? Because of the 15 to 20% tipping norm. The second Biggest set of factors that influence tipping are the social connection that a server is able to establish with customers and some specific actions like smiling at the customer, calling the customer by name, squatting down next to the table so you have better eye contact or touching the customer briefly on the arm. All of these things have a pretty substantial impact on tips in part because they humanize the server they make the customer care more about what that server thinks of them and when the two biggest factors that determine tipping are something that defines social expectations and factors that influence how much you care of what the server thinks of you i'm led to the conclusion that social approval is the main reason
2: for tipping okay that's (laughs) those are that's a great note for us to end on Great ideas, suggestions or findings—not suggestions, I apologize. Findings on how we're a big service community here can do better on their 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 tipping, uh, Professor. Thank. We have to wrap up here, but thank you so much for joining us this morning. You're welcome. Uh, worldwide luxury real estate network Christie's International Real Estate has partnered with some of Park City's most established agents to open Christie's International Real Estate, Park City. The new office will be owned and managed by Sam Cubis, Ben Fisher, Molly Crosswhite, and Rachel Retzer, formerly of Summit S- Sotherby's International Realty. Matt Magnata, formerly of Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Utah Properties, and other real estate developers and mortgage banker, Ace Alec. Joining us this morning to talk about Christie's is Ace himself. Good morning, Ace. Thanks for joining us.
4: Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me.
2: So I have to start off. Is that your God given name, Ace, or is that a nickname?
4: It is not. I, I grew up in Philadelphia. My full name is Ace R and I've been called Ace since I was uh, a, a young boy in the streets of Philly.
2: All right. Great name. Okay. Christie's international real estate was born out of the iconic Christie's auction house. What type of properties is Christie known to specialize in, and what does the real estate company continue to maintain in a partnership with the auction houses?
4: So, when we were looking to open up this brokerage, we obviously reviewed a lot of different brokerages, and one of our key attractive qualities for Christie's International was the auction house. You know, Christie's has been around since 1766. They focused on, you know, art, jewelry, collectibles, and to be associated with the brand, with that type of reputation, uh, the marketing referrals—they're also in 50 countries for a luxury brand. Especially with wanting to start our first offices in Park City and Deer Valley, and primarily focused on luxury, this was a key partnership and allowing some of that leverage. Where you know if somebody's going to list their home, anything in the in the seven figures, it certainly helps to get that kind of exposure internationally. Not to mention the marketing pieces, the the magazines. And culturally, you know, we, we felt like there was a very strong fit with Dad Wong. He was, uh, He's one of the owners. He, he bought the company two years ago with a partner, and he was one of Sam's clients.
0: Okay, so I, that sort of tells me why choose Christie's. But here you have a group of experienced real estate professionals who've decided to leave their existing brokerages and open a new one. Why do we need a new brokerage? What was attractive about it?
4: So the idea of opening a brokerage, I don't think that was so much built around the brand as it was the ideology that people deserve better. You know, about two years ago, you know, I've been in mortgage banking and I'm a land development company and I business coach as well. And I was coaching a lot of real estate agents and I couldn't refer them honorably to a brokerage. And I had over the years, and I say that respectfully to the brokerages out there, but how we coach and how we do business Needed its own new brokerage and so discussing that with Sam Ben Matt and then Molly and Rachel It seemed like this is a need like clients Realtors. Everybody deserves better So what what is it that that
2: makes your vision? What is your vision that's better and different than what may be
4: here now? Well at the core of it is three items number one is two is sales training I believe who owns culture and sales training is gonna own the next decade in real estate mortgage and in, in construction. So look, the last 10 years, you couldn't miss, but in a rising rate environment like it's been right now and where you have inflation that's gone the way it has, you know, you've gone from 4 trillion in circulation to 19 trillion over three years, it's gonna be a different market going to the next decade. And then the last item, so we have a, you know, we have sales training, we have culture, and then we have core values. So I've always believed in all the companies we start with. You have to know, what are you hiring and firing to? What do you stand for? That way, when you're in difficult situations, you know what you fall back to. So I got all the owners in a room, we rented a place over here in the mountains, and I asked them all, what are your core values? What do you stand for? What are your non-negotiables? And we wrote those out, and that's a differentiator.
0: And is that uh, like almost like a mission statement that if you guys put that up on your website?
4: Yeah, if you think about it, we all have our own core value system. I mean, you could be at a, you could be in a loving relationship, but if the person cheats on you once a year, that's a boundary, that becomes one of your values. You know, it doesn't matter that they treat you well the rest of the year. It's similar in business, but people ignore that in business oftentimes, and they just focus on the money. What they don't realize is when you have a value system and people will really respond to that if it's real, the money follows. So high level, what, what is the values?
2: What, what came out, just high level, just in a minute, what came out of that mountain location?
4: So the core values for this Christie's group are kindness, which is we speak to each other, partners and clients with kindness, love, and respect. Love your job, love the people, love the result. Next one is integrity. Make the right decision for the good of others. It's good business and it's good karma. That's one I've been passionate about at my other companies. That means everything's black and white. There is no gray. You don't say, I got the email, um, or you know somebody sends you an email and you say, oh oh I, didn't, oh, I think I read it. You say, you know what, I got the email. I read it, I didn't do anything with it. I'll get back to you by tomorrow at five. It's really black and white. Um, I tell everybody, all my cars are black and white. It's how we like to keep things, right? (laughs) So next one is grit, which is we we sustain energy and activity for long-term results. We set a vision and execute regardless of circumstances. No excuses. You gotta keep pushing forward. There's always a reason not to get through. Next one is abundance. Now this is a big one because a lot of times in mortgage and real estate, people think there's a secret sauce. They don't wanna share. And this is when I had to corner them on. I said, are you guys sure about this one? Because these guys are all top performers. They all have a certain way they do business. And I said, if we go down this road, you guys gotta be open with everyone. And they agreed. So abundance is we collaborate and share knowledge to help everyone progress. Training and mentorship are critical. Our next one is a solution bias. Problems are presented with a solution. A solution mindset is at the core of progress and leadership development. Anybody who's owned a company knows, no whining sessions. So there, if you're gonna whine, you gotta come with a solution. And last one is professionals. How you show up matters. Professionals show up in all aspects of life at a high level. We want those who strive to be the best and desire to become professionals. Well, I I, I teed
2: that up for you. I, I actually went off script here, but obviously, you know, if you're gonna have values, you have to be able to talk about them and you just articulated your company's values very well.
0: Ace, you know, to some extent, P- Some people view real estate marketing as simple. You put it up on the MLS and you wait for somebody to ring the doorbell. Talk to us about, as we see changes in technology, what kinds of marketing innovations are you looking at to try to be sort of at the forefront of sophisticated marketing for your clients?
4: So I'm glad you asked that question. You know, I, I'm going to answer this in, in two segments. The first one is, in real estate, I believe this to be true in real estate construction and mortgage, for a very long time, if you simply did your job You had business and that's always really bothered me because that's such a low bar like you don't you don't go to the store and buy frosted flakes and go home and go well i got frosted flakes when the box said frosted flakes yet in construction if somebody finishes the home when they say they would they're a hero in real estate they like oh they called you back they got it done the way they said so doing the job needs to be the bare minimum and that's been at the core of this for me Um, The second part of that is going to be leverage technologies. Social media is changing things. Organic lead traffic, website traffic, construction development. We have a housing shortage. Those are all items we're focused on and the founders are all professionals at. Okay, great. We have to wrap it up there,
2: but we thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to Mound Money. Please leave a review on your podcast app. It would be helpful for us.